Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. And this week, we have a special episode in honor of Memorial Day. We're taping in our regular Thursday time slot this week, about 11 a.m. May 31st. As they say in the business, news happens fast here in Washington, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everybody. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And our second pregnant podcast panelist in two weeks, Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. So glad you could be here. This week, we also have an interview with Dr. Arthur Kellerman. He's dean of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences, which is basically military medicine's medical school. Don't worry if you've never heard of it. He will explain. So as I mentioned at the top, I want to use this Memorial Day week while Congress is out to talk about the health care we provide to active duty military and to our veterans. And spoiler, those are two separate systems. But first, we have some breaking news from the states. Uh, In Virginia, after a five-year fight, the legislature has voted to expand Medicaid, although in a nod to the fact that the legislature is still controlled by Republicans, though barely, the budget that passed yesterday includes more than just the Medicaid expansion. Who wants to talk about how Virginia would become the 33rd state to vote to make Medicaid available to non-disabled, childless adults. Paige. Well, this I I was just remembering back to when I was actually covering the Virginia State Legislature uh, about half a decade ago and what a change this is because, of course, then Ken Cuccinelli, who was the attorney general in in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act passed, was the first attorney general out of the gates to sue. Um, And so this really is like you know, represents like a long road for Virginia in passing this. Um, but I think what's really interesting is Virginia is the first state to, along with expanding Medicaid, pass a provision which basically says the state is going to ask the federal government for permission to institute work requirements and also premium payments uh, by those, I believe, at poverty level and above. Um, and so, This is something that has helped get conservatives on board, um, but is also something that could result in somewhat fewer people getting Medicaid under the plan. I think that there have been a couple estimates by state entities um, uh, estimating that anywhere from like 33 to 50,000 fewer Virginians would get coverage. Um, So the overall estimate is that this would expand coverage to another 400,000 Virginians, which is a 40% increase in in the program. I mean, Virginia actually has one of the leanest Medicaid programs right now. You can't get coverage um, if you're a childless adult. You can only, and then the income uh, thresholds are really low if you have disability or if you have kids. So yeah, the the parent threshold, I think I looked it up, was 38%, which is like $7,000 a year. Right, right. So expanding coverage to a, up to 138% of the federal poverty level is a really big a really big shift. Um, but of course, none of this goes into effect until next year. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be a lot for the state to do in terms of figuring out what kind of permission it has from HHS to put in the, the work requirements in place. I think it's interesting. These work requirements are kind of a growing trend when Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and 
Administrator Seema Verma came out in January and basically invited states to go do this. There was a lot of interest. There have been a dozen states that have been interested in this. Um, we've seen four so far that have actually taken advantage of it, Kentucky, Arkansas, Indiana, and New Hampshire. And so I think we're going to see more and more states try to go down this path. Um, certainly when Seema Verma was a consultant to then governor of Indiana, Mike Pence, she was pushing this idea and she was pushing the idea of premiums. And so um, as you look at the states that are left that haven't, the 17 states that have not expanded uh, Medicaid, there are several that are looking forward to this idea. Um, I, I think one thing to watch this fall are the states that will have ballot referendum on them. So this would be uh, Utah, Idaho, and potentially Nebraska. Nebraska. And um, then we'll see what happens going forward. I mean, of the states that are left. But those, those ballot measures don't have work requirements, right? Those are just right. expansion right. ballot measures. Exactly. And, yes. of course, we saw what happened in Maine when they passed the ballot measure, and Maine still hasn't expanded. Yes. And governor will next year. <laughs> when there's a new governor. Yes. The other interesting thing about this is, um, you know, there was a political compromise in Virginia, as Paige just outlined. Um and there was some speculation that the same thing would happen in North Carolina, where there's a Democratic governor um, in a state that's really swung a lot more conservative, and the legislature there is not just Republican, but conservative Republican. There was some speculation from the Democrats, as wishful thinking, that the same deal would go down in North Carolina. I think the difference is politics. Virginia had a swing election mm-hmm. <laughs> last November. You know, the Democratic governor got elected easily, and the legislature, one chamber shifted, and the other one got awfully close. Like, p- p- picking the winner out of a fishbowl or whatever it was. Literally, that was literally really, what it was. It wasn't a fishbowl. It was a marble <laughs> ball, whatever. It was a ball. Um, so it's a different political climate. It's it's a compromise with a lot of political, you know, those Republicans who are up again next year in 2020, um, in 20, some in 2018 and some in 2020 saw what happened. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, it's, so, Virginia has a staggered legislature. They don't all right. get, they're and, not all up at the same time. Right. So. And then um, North Carolina stuck. I mean, I don't think, I haven't been in North Carolina at all recently, <laughs> but I've talked to reporters and people who live there, and they don't expect anything to budge in the near I think, future. I don't think. I think uh, one thing that's interesting is that the House, some of the House Republicans in North Carolina have a plan, and obviously Governor Jordan, Cooper right. wants to do this. But I think you're right. I don't see a whole lot of, of maybe movement. after November. I mean, right. depending on what happens, but not between now and then. And right. Georgia is another one where there's been some speculation because a lot of people in the business community, conservatives in the business community, I mean, this is a state where their rural hospitals are really in a lot of trouble. And there's been a business push to um, to expand Medicaid. And there's you, would, you could see how work requirements might ideologically fit in Georgia. But the last I checked, that was still pretty stuck. Again, the state's changing. There's we'll see a, what there's happens a, after. There's a governor's election in Georgia, right. too. Even if she doesn't win, uh, Stacey Abrams has got a lot of, I think her last name is Abrams. I think I got yes. that right. Yeah. Um, if she doesn't win, which is still uphill in Georgia, there, you know, there's some state seats that can change. That the makeup of the legislature could change, and and we could see something happening there. But you know, Virginia has had a Democratic governor, you know, and and still couldn't get it through before. The it was, what change was not just the work requirements. What change think, was the ele- election? Yeah, and I think like Governor Northam has a better relationship with a lot of Republicans. He's more moderate. In the state. He's, He's more not moderate. Terry McAuliffe. He's not right. <laughs> exactly. Republicans like hated Terry McAuliffe because he was like part and of Terry the party McAuliffe. machine. <laughs> he was Bill Clinton's fundraiser. Exactly. That's right. Whereas Ralph Northam was in the state Senate um, more of a 
a go for, get along go along right for quite a long time he already had those personal relationships so he was able to kind of like help I think move some of the legislation along. also he's a ex- physician and he right, made that right. case he made the case of I saw what happens and to he ran very so. specifically on Medicaid yep. expansion and that one was like big one time of, one nine I think it was a nine percent margin you know right yeah, much bigger than was expected and I think also expansion poll has been polling pretty well in Virginia like one poll in January showed like 58 percent of voters supported expansion right. but so. I think well, earlier I think, this year there was sort of an anticipation and I mean I think from the progressive liberals it was it was just wishful thinking or you know a year ahead of their time that they you know I don't I don't really see anything else imminent on but what was interesting yeah. in Virginia is that they hammered at it every year for the mm-hmm. last five years. I mean, I think it had also been – it had been thoroughly litigated in the legislature. Yeah, and it still wasn't a slam dunk. It took quite a few months and it was – you know, by yesterday we knew what was going to happen. But, six but this or eight was a weeks special ago, session, yeah. Yeah, but you know, six or eight weeks ago we weren't totally sure what happened this year. We thought it could have gone into next year. Mm-hmm. Well, also this week, New Jersey officially became the second state to pass a state-level individual mandate following mass. Massachusetts, which, of course, did its mandate prior to the Affordable Care Act in 2006. New Jersey plans to use the penalty revenue it will uh, collect to help fund a new reinsurance pool to help keep premiums down in the individual market. We expected at least a few states to do that this year in light of the repeal of the federal individual mandate by Congress as part of the tax bill in December. But so far, New Jersey is the only one that's actually managed to get it across the finish line. I guess this turns out to be uh, politically more difficult than we thought, even in very blue states. Yeah, we actually wrote earlier in the year that we thought it was politically really tough. Like, we thought that states would talk about it, and it's really hard. I mean, the individual mandate is probably the least popular part of the Affordable Care Act. Even Democrats in polls said they don't really like the government saying, you must do this or we will fine you. You know, it got wrapped up with the debate about vegetables, you know, with their broccoli. Um, the, the, I was actually a little surprised that New Jersey did it. I mean, they've had a big political swing there. They went from Chris, Chris Christie, who everybody knew, and who was somewhat pragmatic on health care. I mean, and who did, did expand Medicaid. He did expand Medicaid. He worked on certain issues with a, with a Democratic legislature. They elected a much more liberal Democratic governor who's sort of being a liberal Democratic governor, <laughs> Bill Murphy. But this was a bill that went through the legislature. Right. I mean, this was not an executive order. No, he but signed he, a bill. he signed it and he was supportive of it. And, and um, you know what? I, I didn't think that New Jersey would do it before California. <laughs> That's what it's the same case. Not even California has done this. Vermont is moving. Vermont, Vermont has is, got some, yes. I believe they have legislation through, Governor but not Murphy all the details. Yes. So, so apparently states that have governors named Murphy, no matter what party they belong to, <laughs> are passing mandates. Are there any that I'm missing? <laughs> I think there's only the two. Right. So, okay. We so, have a trend with if there are only two out of two. So reinsurance is something, though, that is catching fire. Um, we've already seen... Alaska, Minnesota, Oregon, uh, and Maryland move forward on that. That's the sort of thing where um, the government comes in and covers the highest cost patients. And so that relieves some of the pressure on on premiums. And that can make a difference. Um, we're seeing states move forward and, and get approval for waivers from the federal government on that. So, Although sometimes it's taking a long time. And of course, there's always, I guess, the chance that Congress will come back with a reinsurance bill. But well, only if you doesn't... want to hold your breath for a long time. But that got, you know, that got tied up in abortion politics. There, there's probably um, a decent amount of support, maybe not there were 60 co-sponsors at one point. Yeah, but we've seen co- co-sponsors <laughs> sometimes lose, get lost on the way to the floor vote. 
I mean, there was support in the Senate a lot more. It was a lot shakier in the House. Yeah. There was support, and there probably is still support for doing something to stabilize the exchanges because these, um, you know, Republicans, just like Democrats, have to face angry people whose premiums are going up. Well, that's um, the point the Heritage Foundation has been making, which I think they're actually kind of right about. Like, they're coming out with this kind of pie-in-the-sky plan, which we, none of us, I think, <laughs> we also believe will ever always, pass Congress. But but we, I believe it is be not pre- ready. I'm not right. saying it will never pass Congress. But we Congress. get surprised all the time. I mean, you, you know, who knows what? they're going to do the day before the election. I don't know. But but I think Heritage does make a good point that like Democrats are like, I mean, I think like there was research from um, uh, that my that my colleague James Homan cited this morning that more than 50 percent of ads by House Democrats have mentioned health care since January. So Democrats are like on this. They are on the health care thing. And Republicans don't know what to say. They literally don't like have a response but other it, than yeah. to say we repealed the individual mandate. You I mean, know. that's their message. Like, with the mo- we, we got rid of the most onerous. Well, they have a two-part message. They can say we got rid of the most hated, onerous, you know, broccoli-ish. I like broccoli, <laughs> but that's irrelevant. Um, you know, we got rid of this horrible mandate, this big government stick that was, you know, that you all hated. And that that's the pivot of Obamacare. So we've really weakened it. And they can say we're also offering you the short-term plans and AHPs, and you'll have more affordable choices that are not part of Obamacare. So they have a message. But their struggle is, like, what do they say about the premium increases You don't have year? to. Right, like, because, they didn't do right. anything about it last year. And now they're, you know, more premium increases are coming out. What you know, and but like there's no mandate, the- and people will have cheaper alternatives. I mean, the, the, I think we're going into a period where the story shifts to costs. I mean, we're already there, but I think the Republicans and Democrats will each figure out a way of talking about costs that blame the other one. And since people aren't thinking critically about health care, it's so tied up with their personal ideology and politics. You know, the Democratic voters will blame the Republicans for, you know raising the cost because of, quote, sabotage. And the Dem- Republicans will say, you know, it's still because of Obamacare and we- they could have fixed it and the Democrats blocked it. And, you know, here's what we're doing instead. We're working around them. So, you know, how much voters vote on health care, it's too soon to know with everything else going on in this fast-paced environment and, um, you know, how much it becomes well, sort of Well, it plays well among Dem voters. Like, polls have shown Dem voters rank health care higher yeah, than Republican always voters have. this but, year. But, you know, whether whether how pivotal it is in voter behavior, whether it changes minds of independence, whether it gets Democrats to the polls, it'll be hard to tease out what gets a Democrat to the poll because Democrats are really motivated this year. They have a long list of things they are mad about. And, you know, Republicans are going to be trying to you know, keep control of the Senate and, and the House. So they're, they're, it's going to be really hard to tease. I agree with you. I don't, I'm not disagreeing at all. I agree with you. But I think it's just hard for us to know in, we're still the last day of May, right? It isn't June until tomorrow, um, exactly what the, who votes why. And, and But I but I agree. But I think, Paige, is, it's making an important point that, that whatever in the end turns the tide, Democrats are very much doubling down on health care, which I healthcare find and a little bit and abortion and issues and guns and, you know. It just, it's striking to and me Trump. because they were, I mean, they really downplayed the premium increases over the last few years. And especially they made a point of pointing out the subsidies that are available to people. They, the Democrats. Of course, the Democrats, right, and the Obama administration. And the subsidies are still available, you know, despite the premium increases, but you don't hear Dems talking about that. They're all about premium increases, you know, and that's just like such a dramatic shift. And of course, we've still only it. seen a handful of states. so And they're be... preliminary. Right, and, right. Yeah. Long way from we'll there. Get that. Right. Well, they're going to go up. I mean, I don't think any of us think they're not going to go up. It's just a question of how much they're going to go right. up and, and how ugly it gets. And, and remember, you know, Trump is a really good messenger. And, you know, what? how he chooses whatever he chooses to say three or four do- days before and what issue he chooses to motivate people 
whether it's the premiums, which worked for him last time, or something that we can't imagine yet, or, you know, God knows what's going to be going on in the rest of the world. You know, I, I just, it, it quick, you know, it turns on a dime. All right. Well, let's turn. I want to talk about what I had originally planned for this week, which is the status of the system that cares for our active duty military and veterans who are injured in service to the country. Together, these systems, and they are separate, serve about 18 million Americans. Um, Last week, while we were focused on other things, Congress passed a $46.5 billion bipartisan bill aimed at making private care more available for veterans and doing a bunch of other things. Who wants to talk about what's in the package, Rebecca? I can talk about it. So um, the VA covers about 9 million vets. It provides uh, care to about 9 million. And since the CHOICE program started about four years ago, then about 2 million veterans have used this. That's the private part. That's the private part, yes. It allows people to go outside of the VA system. And um, we're seeing that number grow. It got off to a slow start when we were all covering it four years ago. And and now it's about a million people per year. And so what we've seen um, in the program, there are three major parts to the law, which President Trump is going to sign soon. Um, They thought this week, but it hasn't happened yet. Right. I'm I'm hearing June 6th from some veterans groups, but that could change. June 6th or 7th. Basically before, if you were trying to get the private care, then you had to meet certain criteria. You had to try to get an appointment, and it would take 30 days or more. Try to get an appointment at the VA. At the VA, yes. Or you would uh, have to live 40 miles away from a VA facility or, you know, in Alaska, they made it 20. They, they expanded it over the years to allow more people to do this. Um, but basically, they're, they're really broadening it quite a bit. And they're saying, you know, if you, were, if you qualified before, then you still qualify. And, you know, if you live in a, a state that doesn't have a full-service VA center, you qualify. But they're also saying that if your doctor says it's in your best interest, then you can go outside the VA and get care. And that's a big shift. Um, they also are creating this commission that will look at VA facilities and say whether or not um, these facilities need to be closed, need to be renovated. Some people have kind of compared this to a brass Base commission, closing, right. right? Which is Up-down not exactly vote. accurate, but it, it it's similar. It's a the idea, right? Exactly. So that's going to be very controversial. And then there's a little part that extends some caregiver benefits, allows um, people who are caring for vets to get mental health counseling and health care services and, and a stipend. And a stipend yes. Yeah, I mean, that's actually that's sort of I didn't realize until I was looking at this bill that that caregiver program has only been available to um, people who are caring for veterans who are injured post, you know, post 2001, 9/11. post 9-11. That's right. Um, and so there's all these sort of aging Vietnam veterans and people from the first Gulf War who are not eligible for this. And there's been some uh consternation, if you will, about that fact. So so they're going to expand this, I guess, in two different parts. Yes, in different phases. And it's an interesting, there, there's been a big debate over this bill, um, even though it was com- it was very bipartisan in the, in the end, but it kind of moved, the debate moved along in fits and starts for a while. Um, and there there's a group, Concerned Veterans for America, that is funded by the Koch brothers that's very interested in moving towards more private care. Um, because, remember, the VA is the second largest federal agency in terms of, of bureaucrats. And also, you know, when people talk about sort of different kind of health systems, you know, you talk about Medicare for all, which would be sort of more like the Canadian system where the 
caregivers are private, but the government pays the bills. And then you have sort of the British system where the government owns it and the government, you know, the, the government owns the facilities and employs the, the physicians. That's the VA model. The VA model is much more like England than exactly it is like Canada. Right. Yes. The VA is the closest thing we have to the National Health Service in England. And so there's there's a philosophical debate over this as well. So there's basically bipartisan agreement about having a degree of private option of choice. The question is, what is that degree? And what the the fear is... Kind of like the debate they're having in England. <laughs> yes. Um, and the fear is that this, this new bill, this will be a law in a few days or a week, um, will c- create pressures that weak, that push people so much into the private sector that the VA becomes more marginal. And what people forget about the VA is obviously there have been terrible scandals and, you know, with mm-hmm. the program deserved by, you know, the, not just the scheduling problems, but then the cover up. But the VA also does a lot of really innovative, good things in healthcare, including training a lot of physicians. And um, they do a lot of really sort of team oriented care. There's a lot of care coordination. There's a lot of quality end of life care. They had and the first like actually the interoperable medical electronic right, medical record. Right, right, they did. And, and so there's all these sort of good things about the VA that get ignored because some of these bad things are in fact very bad. Um, but you know, we the question is how 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 much do you serve people in the community outside the VA? Because if it goes as far as the Koch brothers would want, it would really potentially set other parts of the VA really crumbling and weaken it. And there was really the thought that the 30-day, 40-mile rule was just too rigid and didn't allow for providers to make nuanced decisions about their patients in particular circumstances. And so I think that's a really key part of this bill is that... Which is why it was bipartisan. There's some valid valid concerns about access to timely and appropriately specialized care. And there's a a lot of concern about that, and that is a cross-party line. Well, and that's one thing that Robert Wilkie, assuming he's confirmed soon, will have to kind of help the agency spell out is is, is what will the new standards be and how much leeway will providers and patients have in determining when they can seek care. And I think the bill lays out some general principles to consider, but the idea is to get away from like this rigid you know, benchmark of when they could go get get outside care. You know, if you talk to um, the veterans groups, um, they seem to be taking like a pretty nuanced position. I spoke with someone with the American Legion yesterday, and their con- they, their concern is like twofold. So they want to make sure that the VA is is using all of the resources available to it, and that veterans are you know maximizing the care that they can get there. But then also that there is sufficient flexibility to make sure that vets can get if they can get better care at another facility or if they're not able to get the appointment or the care they need at a VA facility, um, sort of expanding that flexibility. Um, and that those were the concerns they, they outlined to me. Another big concern here, though, too, and I think you alluded to this, Joanne, is that it's really expensive. Um, I think the CBO has said, like, the Mission Act overall would cost, like, it's around $50 billion over five years or something. It's, well, there, yeah, it's, it's a lot of money. $55 billion. And then um, there's already going to be a shortfall next year. They just put in $5.2 billion in mandatory money for this coming year. But that money is going to run out, they're saying, now in May. So next week when we see Congress debating on the House floor the military construction and VA bill. The appropriations Lowy's, bill. Yeah. Yes, the appropriations bill. We're going to see Nita Lowy come up and try to have an amendment to take care of that problem because they're going to be about a billion to a billion and a half dollars short. 
And that's the ironic thing about conservatives being all in favor of the privatization, because on one hand, like, I get that, but it's also like it's really expensive way for the government to pay for health care. So the privatization is bled into this fight over the next VA secretary. As Paige uh, uh, mentioned, there is now a new VA secretary nominee. Uh, You would be forgiven if you missed this happening because it happened at a White House event on prison reform. President Trump called out VA acting secretary Robert Wilkie uh, and said he planned to nominate him to the to the full-time job. Uh, Wilkie has been an undersecretary at the Defense Department for Personnel and Readiness. And actually, he's now gone back to the Defense Department because you can't be the acting secretary and the secretary nominee. But apparently in um, uh, naming another acting secretary, uh, the president overlooked the the person who was next in line for it because that's retiring. Right. right, That person is allegedly not a big fan of privatization. He's an ally of the former secretary, (laughs) David Shulkin, right? Because he was not a fan of privatization. So, I mean, do we are we how confident are we that that Wilkie is enough of a fan of privatization to actually make it through well, the confirmation Well, he has to process. be enough of a fan to not say it, though. I mean, he has to be able to sort of tell tell people, I'm yes, I want to do more. He's, he can't call it privatization. He's going to have to say, I want more choice and service in the community to meet veterans' needs, which is a wink-wink privatization line. And he has to tell the Democrats, and I'm going to preserve this important service we have known as the VA. So, um, I mean, we sort of, at the very beginning, you know, Ronnie Jackson, at the first few days, we knew he wasn't really qualified, but we thought he'd probably get through anyway, unless something emerged that we didn't know about him, and boy, did it! it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think that Wilkie's more of a traditional appointment. Um, He has worked on Military issues. He hasn't been the VA. He understands more of the needs of servicemen. Well, he's he, been a government. He's been in two. He was been in two administrations. Two administrations. Yeah. He's more. He's a more of a. I don't know much about his particular Medicare medical background, but he's more of a establishment choice. He was his, confirmed unanimously by the Senate already right. as a undersecretary at the Pentagon for his current job. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. Right. So I mean, it, it looks like he'll, he'll. You know, they know how to finesse these things. We've all seen it a million times. You know, you get through your confirmation hearing, and at the end of that confirmation hearing, I don't think any of us will really know. <laughs> What he wants to well, do. But, I mean, but he could also <laughs> basically hide behind this bill if he wanted to. I'm it was going bipartisan. to implement it. Right. I'm going to implement this, yeah. all these new choice provisions. That would be kind of a safe way. I'll to... get back to you, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> One little wrinkle is that um, because President Trump bypassed the normal order, then there are some questions about um, whether some of the contracts that Wilkie signed when he was acting secretary are actually Cerner. legal. Yes, yes the so electronic should, health records. We should mention this. $10 billion. It was a $10 billion contract yes. to, to upgrade Which the Which he signed. VA. He didn't. Yeah. Um, that was done. The contract was negotiated on Shulkin's watch. Right. And then it wasn't signed because of concerns about their ability to execute everything he needed in terms of sharing medical records. And it got signed. Yeah, so and the, there'll be a court. I mean, everything is going to court, right? I mean, what isn't? <laughs> it's it's full employment for for lawyers who and work us. on federal issues and re- and reporters. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be interested to see how this. You know, the the idea. I I think I went to my first hearing about the the VA and the Defense Department military medical system not being able not their electronic medical records not being able to talk to each other in like two thousand and. I mean, it's been a really long time. And I think the hope was that Cerner had designed the DOD's military uh, medical record. So perhaps if Cerner's doing the VA medical record, they would play better together. Yeah, the idea is to have a seamless, I mean, you're before you're a veteran, you're an active military. And the idea of that you had a fairly sophisticated defense 
healthcare system mm-hmm. and then a fairly sophisticated veterans health system and that they couldn't communicate was not seen as a particularly smart way to go. So part of the reason that they went with Cerner is it was the VA went with Cerner and a no-bid contract, which was also a controversy under Shulkin, um, was because DOD, the Defense Department, had gone with, with Cerner. And the idea is to have basically one big happy health record. But who knows? Right there, are a lot of problems. You know, um, a lot of problems in the initial rollout. It's being done in a few hospitals in the Pacific Northwest, and it's been a disaster. I like that phrase, "one big happy health record." I think that's a goal that's for the whole healthcare not anyone, industry. Not that anyone has ever seen one big happy no. health record. Um, we have no idea what that even looks like. Right. You could be admitted to the hospital and greeted by this giant emoji with a red cross on it or something. <laughs> People Little hearts see. in its eyes. Right? All right. Well, that is the VA. Now we're going to turn to the military medical system with the interview I taped earlier this week with Art Kellerman. We will go to the interview, then come back and do our extra credit. So here it is. So we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Art Kellerman. Dr. Kellerman is a distinguished emergency medicine physician and teacher, and since 2013, he's been the dean of the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. We're staying with our military medicine theme today, so I'm excited to be here on campus. Welcome. Thank you, Julie. Uh, First, explain to the listeners exactly where we are physically. The Uniformed Services University, or USU, is in North Bethesda. For those who know the D.C. area, if you're driving up Rockville Pike, to your left you'll see the National Institutes of Health, and to your right you'll see that beautiful World War II-era Roosevelt Tower that is Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Just east of that tower is the School of Medicine, and the rest of the campus of the Uniformed Services University, which really serves as the leadership academy for military health. I grew up not far from here, and I have friends who have attended this school, but I think it's fair to say that USU is a fairly well-kept secret. Explain exactly what your medical school does and how it's different from the rest of the medical schools in the U.S. Well, it's too well-kept a secret in my regard. I think that we really need to do a better job of getting the word out. This school is unique among American medical schools. It's the only school in the country that's owned and operated for the United States by the United States. And the students who come here all come with a commitment to national service. They pay no tuition. They're given a free education. But instead of paying back a bank, they pay back the nation with seven years of national service as a military officer in the Army, Navy, Air Force, or Public Health Service. It's really a win for the country, and certainly it's a win for the students. So it's basically like West Point or the Naval Academy or the Air Force Academy, except that it's for health professionals. Exactly. It's a leadership academy for military doctors, nurses, dental professionals, and now we've started a new school of allied health as well. And I'll get to that in a minute, but tell me how this school came to be. At the end of the Vietnam War, Congress ended the draft. The Department of Defense realized they were going to have a tough time getting doctors to continue to put on the uniform when they weren't compelled to do so. So Congress created two programs. One, the Armed Forces Health Professions Scholarship Program, which actually pays medical students to get a degree at a civilian school and then pay back a four-year service obligation to the services. But they also created, thanks to a Louisiana congressman named F. Edward A. Bear, the School of Medicine at USU to be that West Point, Annapolis, and Colorado Springs rolled into one. So the students who come here make an extra three-year commitment, seven in total, but in addition to getting a really 
in-depth medical preparation. They also learn to be military medical officers. So we pack about 700 extra hours of leadership training, field exercises, uh, education in combat casualty care, tropical medicine, and other skills that are of particular importance to military officers. It is an amazing place, and we have an amazing student body. Do most of the students do their seven years and then go into civilian medicine, or do most of them remain in military medicine? The majority of them, after they do their seven years, just keep right on going. They love the military. They love the mission. They believe in what they're doing. And so we have a remarkable retention rate. Uh, so the country actually gets much more than that service obligation back. Um, it's important to understand our students, our first-year class will be 35 or 40 percent prior service. They may have come from the academies, ROTC, or they may have come straight from a fighter squadron, a naval ship, uh, a tank, and they have signed on to be medical students, but they're joined with classmates straight from college, NCAA athletes, former Peace Corps Teach for America volunteers. You put those young men and women in a classroom together, amazing things happen, and we really turn out a remarkably high-performing product. As you point out, the school is free, or at least in trade, for their service. Medical student debt is obviously a big problem, and studies have shown that you know shapes students' uh, future careers. They sometimes have so much debt that they feel like they have to become specialists, or they have to become certain kinds of specialists. And and there are already programs that help medical students in other schools afford their medical education. Do you think that this could be, or should be, more of a model for how to train the next generation of medical professionals? Anything that makes medical school more affordable is a good thing. Uh, I think our model is particularly appealing because a young person who can come from very modest means, one out of every five of our freshmen next year will be the first in their family to even go to college. That allows people who would never even be able to dream of being a doctor become a doctor. So I'm all for anything that lowers those barriers. It will allow people to get involved. It's no surprise that we have a higher percentage of graduates going to family medicine and other primary care backgrounds for exactly that reason. One, it's valued and high impact in the military. But second, they won't have to worry about literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that they have to pay off. Instead, they can serve take care of people who really need their help, and have a great time doing it. But I assume you must have also special programs in trauma, given what they're being trained for. Absolutely. We disproportionately produce students that want to go into surgery, emergency medicine, uh, aerospace medicine, and a number of very high-demand military backgrounds. A, they have great role models here. About half of our faculty are in uniform, particularly in the clinical doctors. And then second, the extra training and the extra preparation they get really gets them excited and more inclined to tackle those kinds of, of trades and backgrounds. So, so where do they go off to do their residencies when they're finished here? Almost all of them go to residency programs in military hospitals. In fact, we like to call ourselves America's Medical School, not only because of that unique mission, but because our teaching hospitals are all across America. Our students do their clinical rotations as far east as Portsmouth Naval Medical Center and as far west as Honolulu and parts in between. Most of the residencies are also in those hospitals, Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, right? Uh, Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, San Antonio uh, Military Medical Center. These are really top-tier hospitals with fantastic residency programs, and it helps those 
uh, trainees to get even more acculturated to the military and to a career service. And remind the listeners again that the military medical system is not the same as the VA medical system. No, ma'am, it's not. We're partners. We care for the same clientele, but at different points in their lives. Um, but the military medical system is independent. We're the only healthcare system that has to give great care day to day to millions of Americans, over 9 million American service members, their families, and military re- retirees count on that system. But it's also a healthcare system that's unique in America because our doctors and nurses and health professionals have to be willing to pack up and deploy and go anywhere in the world to care for those in harm's way at the drop of a hat. And they're always ready to do that. And you mentioned at the top that it's not just physicians who get trained here. No, we also have a fantastic graduate school of nursing that teaches certified nurse anesthetists, nurse practitioners, and others. We have a postgraduate dental college that trains dental professionals. Uh, There's an old saying in the military, if you can't bite, you can't fight. And we have now created, with the support of Congress, a College of Allied Health that in the future will help medics, corpsmen, and other enlisted health professionals qualify for associates or bachelor's degrees through the university. There's a saying at the medical education training campus in San Antonio we've taken to heart, train for the mission, educate for a lifetime. These are people who are coming out of of medical jobs, basically, in the military, but they've not yet been trained for civilian-type careers? Well, they actually, ironically, they've always been trained for civilian-type careers, but they didn't have the piece of paper that would allow them to do it. I think one of the greatest wastes of human capital in healthcare today is the fact that there are about 11,000 medics, corpsmen, and Air Force med techs who do amazing work downrange when they're deployed on shipboard, in submarines, in remote air bases, are the backbone of healthcare in the military health system overseas. But when they come back to the United States, and especially when they take off the uniform, the civilian world says, we don't have a job for you. We don't even know who you are. That's a tragedy. I think we could really make an impact by developing career pathways for those individuals so they can keep serving the nation in civilian clothes as well and as capably and with as much honor as they did when they were in uniform. And, and that was the origin of the physician assistant program in the, after the Vietnam War, wasn't it? Absolutely. And now with the advent of computers and mobile decision support and smartphones, a lot of that memorization can be packed into your hip pocket. And I believe in the future that this type of a, of a model, a medic working with a primary care doctor, a nurse practitioner, a PA, could be the solution to the primary care shortage in America. Better, more affordable, more accessible. Let's keep people healthy instead of waiting for them to get sick. This university, I know, has been the target of budget cutters as long as I've been covering uh, health care on Capitol Hill. Uh, have you finally proved your worth? I don't think any bad idea in Washington ever goes away totally. It just goes to sleep for a few years. I fully expect on my watch at some point I'll have to defend the value equation. The good news is when you consider the incredible achievements that military health did during our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, And anyone who realizes how much our alumni working in partnership with their HPSP counterparts contributed to that, there should be nothing to discuss anymore. But like I said, there's always somebody who thinks they might be able to save a buck here and there. But I don't think that the lives of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are worth that gamble. Dr. Kellerman, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. 
Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a health story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss one. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Joanne, you want to go first this week? Oh, there's a story in the Atlantic from Olga Case, and I think that's how Olga pronounces her last name. But um, it's called Ambien Doesn't Cause Racism. Roseanne Barr suggested that the drug prompted her to tweet racist remarks, but is that possible? This, admittedly, is not the most common consequential health story of the week, but it is the most irresistible. So this story talks about, no, actually, if you tweet under Ambien, some people apparently do, but you tweet very messily with a lot of typos while eating bizarre things like buttered cigarette sandwiches, but you don't tweet. Uh, you we, don't tweet with the way Roseanne tweeted. We should Personally, point out. Oh, pretty it, sev- you know, crude jokes, but they were, there were no typos. We should point out that, that, that there are a lot of claims that Ambien that Ambien does, does, I mean, there's tons weird of things. stuff on things that are done on Ambien, but they said that if the tweeting isn't one of them, Sanofi, the drug company, you know, in this marvelous comeback said, you know, all drugs have side effects, but racism isn't yes. one of them. Well, and how many people have, you know, how many times have we seen people tweet equally horrible things on, you know, without claiming to be under the effects of a drug? Yes. So. Right. <laughs> Anyway, it's a, it's a fun piece. And it also talks, there's some serious sleep medicine that she also links to for those of you who have trouble sleeping, which she does, right, or did. Rebecca. So my piece is by ProPublica, Marshall Allen of ProPublica, Why Your Health Insurer Doesn't Care About Your Big Bills. And this feeds into a body of work that a lot of reporters are pursuing now about costs, which is the big unresolved issue that America is facing And uh, Kaiser Health News, for example, does a surprise bill of the month, right? So this is something that a lot of us are pursuing. And this story is just an incredible tale of someone who has so much expertise in insurance bills. This is somebody who works He's an actuary. He's an actuary. He has worked for insurance companies for 30 years. He's the past president of the Actuarial Society of Greater New York. And he goes and he gets a partial hip replacement. And he is stunned that something that was a did not have any complications was a one night a one day thing it cost $70,000 and he's infuriated because his portion is 10% $7,000 and so a big battle ensues and he goes through all these herculean efforts to explain to Aetna and to explain to the hospital in New York why these the, these charges are overblown. And Aetna doesn't care, basically. Aetna says, you know, this is what the contract well, allows. Well, they had negotiated so we'll, it down we have from like $130,000 or something. Right. And this is this is what it is. And so eventually the hospital sues the man for unpaid bills. He goes to court and they end up settling. Instead of $7,000, he has to pay $4,000. But the idea, you know, originally insurance companies were supposed to be the middleman who would negotiate and who would strike deals. And they're just not playing their role in society Well, they don't really have an incentive. I mean, that's what it's really about. It's about the It's about the perverse incentives and the dysfunction in our system because insurance companies get paid. They can just hike up rates going forward. It doesn't really hurt their bottom line. And, you know, there's, there was a provision in the health care law, the medical loss ratio, which said that insurance companies had to pay some, – some had to pay 20 percent, some had to pay 15 percent of um, premium dollars – on healthcare costs, or no, more than, no, more no more than right, exactly eighty and eighty-five on healthcare, right. fifteen to twenty on other right. stuff. And so the the point was that that the Obama administration had tried to move forward and tried to use that provision to try to hold down costs, but 
it did not work because if the premium is higher, then they can spend more on administrative costs and marketing. So it, it's just an interesting story and um, feeds into a larger debate. Misaligned incentives would be a great band Paige has her story to tell. But um, when those of us who follow, listeners who follow us on Twitter know this, but listeners who are just listen to us don't know this, all the What the Health woman went out for dinner. Are there eight of us or nine of us now? I think there's eight of us. Right, eight of us. And we all went out for dinner a couple of weeks ago. And we are all knowledgeable about healthcare. And we are all sophisticated healthcare consumers. And we all, we spent most of our dinner talking about all the problems that we have had with our own health insurance. And, um, and if, you know, sort of we can't do it and we can't, Nobody else can. So, Joanne, Paige. I've been telling all my friends your hilarious yeah, story. Yeah, Joanne, we'll tell, one. <laughs> we'll tell it another day. <laughs> Joanne, what? We will we'll tell it another day. good story. It is a good story, but I always have good stories. You know that, Paige. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Right. It's true. Paige. So, okay, so my story is from the New York Times. It's called Origins of an Epidemic. Purdue Pharma knew its opioids were widely abused by Barry Meyer. And I, think, I, I would bet this is an article that a lot of um, attorneys representing all of these cities, states, counties – suing over the opioid epidemic uh, are probably paying attention to. And so basically, um, the New York Times got a hold of this confidential Justice Department report um, in in which federal prosecutors said that they had evidence that Purdue actually had a lot of information about how its, opi- its, its opioid medication, Oxycontin, was abused, um, even though the company had claimed that it didn't. It was completely unaware of how powerful and addictive and prone to to abuse this medication was. Um, so apparently, according to this report, company officials um, had or Purdue officials had received reports that pills were being crushed and snorted, stolen from pharmacies. Some doctors were being charged with selling prescriptions. Um, and yet the company continued to market Oxycontin as less prone to abuse and addiction than other opioids. Um, and actually, apparently, Justice Department prosecutors recommended that three top Purdue executives be indicted on felony charges. Uh, but at the time, um, under the George W. Bush administration, um, the, the the case was actually settled. But this report is is sort of disclosed for the first time here. So I think that's really, really, really interesting, of course, as you see all of these uh, municipalities and states trying to gather evidence that the makers of these opioids should actually be held responsible for the damage that their medications It looks more and more like the tobacco litigation. We actually might want to, when you post the the story that Paige is referring to, the New Yorker also had a really, really good piece maybe two months ago or so on what what they, you know, what what is known about the company's behavior, particularly uh, the uh, the Sackler family, who we all had thought about as Art Philanthropists yeah. built museums, <laughs> and this is how they got their money. So that's a really a good piece too. And then the um, you know we, we actually read a story recently about the lessons of the tobacco uh, settlements and what what they hold for this on enormous, staggeringly huge number of I can't keep track. Lots and lots of opioid cases being consolidated. The, w- in the one the one glaring difference though being that like of course the opioid makers are gonna argue that their medications weren't being used as intended, whereas the tobacco makers, the products were being used as intended. So that's sort of like the the difference there, I guess. You, well, but the suppression of evidence is gonna be similar. And the the other issue is, you know, what happens when you do if and when you do get a settlement what does it get spent on? Does it actually get sent, yeah. spent on public health or does it plug up? Does a little of it get spent on public health and the rest of it just goes to plug up state budget holes, which is what happened. With and tobacco. build roads. Yeah. Right. <laughs> or the, you know, one of my favorite ones is that one of this. I always forget whether it's North Dakota or South Dakota. I think it was North Dakota. They used their. It was public. One could argue it was 
addressing the impact of tobacco. They use their tobacco money to build a morgue. <laughs> All right. Well, journalism still matters. Um, my extra credit is a story I actually never thought about uh, before I read it. It's from Bloomberg News. It's called "Is There a Doctor to, Doctor Aboard Airlines Often Hope Not?" By That's a Ian, great, that was a great story by right? Ian yeah. Livingston. It's about the fact that it's not just a huge inconvenience if a passenger jet has to divert for a sick passenger, but it's also really expensive. It can cost as much as two hundred thousand dollars to land a plane somewhere other than where it was headed. Um, and the story suggests that onboard medical professionals are more likely to recommend an unscheduled landing for a sick passenger than the medical consultants that airlines contract with on the ground. The whole thing is kind of troubling in a whole lot of ways. And I think the message is you should try really hard not to have an in-flight emergency if you possibly can. All right. So that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Uh, at PW underscore Cunningham. At Rebecca Adams, DC. At Joanne Kennan. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.